0: Well, thank you all so much for coming today. It's kind of nasty weather out there, right? Amen. Good day for ducks and frogs. Most Baptists don't like rain. If it's raining, they stay home. Y'all know that? Y'all must not be Baptists today. I'm kidding. Glad you're here. Glad we're going to have an opportunity to worship the Lord together. Ronnie's singing a lot about love today. You know, that's an interesting subject. The world has a lot of mixed thoughts about love. In fact, the world has perverted something God made to be good. There are a lot of people in this world that don't know love. They've never experienced it. They don't understand it. They think it's something that it's not. I shared with you last week that God is love. Love is not just something that God does. Love is who God is. And when you can get a hold of that, wrap your mind around that, and experience the love of God, it'll change who you are. It is a true statement. We learn to love because Christ first loved us. When you looked in the mirror this morning, how lovely were you? (laughs) Some of us just aren't as lovable as we think we are. (laughs) You know, occasionally I get asked the question, if God is such a loving God, then why is there a hell? Why is it that God is going to pass judgment on people somewhere in the future and actually put people in a literal hell? If God is so loving, why is that going to happen? Well, my first thought and answer is this. God didn't make hell for human beings. He has designed that place to be a place of punishment for fallen angels. Those who actually were created to be in his presence to worship him for all eternity. And they rebelled and, and God is going to punish them in hell for eternity. God didn't want any human beings to wind up in hell. Absolutely none. But you know what Satan does? Satan wants company. And he's going to do everything he can to take you into hell with him. The real question is, shouldn't be shouldn't the real question we should ask is not why did God create hell but rather why did God send his son to go to the cross to make a way to keep you out of hell. And why do you think he did that? It's because he loves us. Exactly. And, and I don't think we understand the, the depth of God's love, again, because the world has perverted love so much. When we talk about the love of God, we just kind of pass it off and don't think about it, or we think weird things about it. But God loved us, and Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? eternal life god loves you enough to give you eternal life he loves you enough that even after you've sinned against him he still want to give you he still wants to give you the very best gift that anybody could ever give you and that is life with him that never ever ends god loves all people red yellow black and white they're precious in his sight amen he loves everybody he loves you and he loves me he values relationships. He treasures relationships. He loves sinners. He hates our sin. Don't ever don't ever think he doesn't. He hates it when you sin. But he loves sinners. And God's word tells us that we're to love just like he loves. We're we're to love sinners too. In in the in book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, Paul tells Christians this. He says, Live a life filled with love for others following the example of Christ who loved you and gave himself as a sacrifice to take away your sins. And God was pleased. Why? Because of love. God was pleased because that sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, was like a sweet perfume to him. You can make your sacrifice the same way. In fact, Jesus said, Now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Friends, we're to have the love of God in our hearts. We're to love God with all of our hearts. We're to love each other. And we're to love sinners. Love is best demonstrated not through our words, but rather through our actions of ministry. It's what you do, it's not what you say. As Christians, we've all been gifted and called to do ministry. Can can I say that again? Because I don't want you to miss that. As Christians, we have all been gifted and called for ministry. God has prepared you to do works of ministry. And quite honestly, you know, when we, we think about church life and we think about pastors, we think, oh, they're ministers. It's their job to do ministry. No, it's our job to do ministry. We're all ministers of the gifts that God has entrusted into our care. You have a spiritual gift. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you're to use that gift to minister to other people. It's not given to you to use on yourself. It's given to use on the rest of the body of Christ. You are a minister, and we are called to love just like Jesus loves by demonstrating that love for others. What did Jesus do? He demonstrated his love for you where? At the cross. Well, if we're like him, then we should also demonstrate our love for one another. And how do we do that? Through service to each other. Peter says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Love is one of the greatest qualities that anybody could ever possess. Love is a beautiful thing. John MacArthur says, there have always been dedicated pastors who sacrificed in life and death for the church. It was love for the church that drove the busy reformers like Luther and Calvin to preach consistently or constantly to their flocks, not merely on Sundays, but throughout the week. Many Puritan pastors continue to preach the word after being forbidden to do so by the authorities. They knew they risked being imprisoned, as was John Bunyan, uh, but love for the church compelled them to take the risk. Love for the church consumed uh, the godly 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShaney. It was ill health that. Uh, uh, caused him to lose his life. And, he, and MacArthur says ill health could not deter him from loving his loving service and consequently he died at a young age. He was a pastor that loved God so much that he literally burned out serving God. He died at 29, giving his life for God. He also says it was love for the church that motivated Charles Spurgeon to speak against the modernism of his day that was creeping into the evangelical church During the resulting downgrade controversy, which was literally a liberal movement that was watering down the gospel message in the churches of England, Spurgeon took a stand against it. He began to preach against it and and to teach against it. And as he did, Spurgeon was sharply criticized for his stand, and some of those closest to him deserted him. And yet he refused to back down, although the stress the controversy generated hastened his death. There are an endless number of examples of both men and women that have sacrificially loved the church throughout church history, and that number is growing even today as I speak. People are giving their life, loving the church and loving Christ. It's my feeling, though, that of all that have done that, the greatest was the Apostle Paul. I don't think anybody's ever loved the church any more than the Apostle Paul did. Listen to how he wrote his letters to the church at Philippi. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. That's a beautiful statement. Every time I think of you, I give thanks. How many times do we think of people and we go, oh, man. <laughs> Wish I hadn't had that thought. He thinks good things. He says, I always pray for you and I make my request with a heart full of joy because you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus comes back again It is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a very special place in my heart. When he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he says, your lives are a letter written in our hearts. He says, I'm not saying this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts forever. We live or die together with you. Listen to the deep Love that Paul had for the Thessalonians. He wrote to them these words. He says, as an apostle of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. But we were as gentle among you as a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we gave you not only God's good news, but our lives as well. Paul loved the church. You know, he was just simply doing what Christ commanded him to do. You and I are commanded to do likewise. We are commanded to love God, but we're also to love his people. It's easy to say I love God. Amen? It's another thing to love his people. Because quite honestly, we're not always lovable, are we? Some days we get up on the wrong side of the bed. We have an attitude. We look kind of... Well, I won't even go there. (laughs) But some days we're just not very lovable. And yet we're supposed to love one another. I've always said God has a real big sense of humor to make us all different and yet call us all under one roof and say, get along and love each other. Hey, God can help us do it. Jesus said, I command you to love each other in the same way that I love you And here is how to measure it. The greatest love is shown when people lay down their lives for their friends. You are my friends if you obey me. So loving each other is not an option, is it? Not something we can pick and choose. It is a command from the Lord. It is also a privilege. And again, Paul took that seriously and he made the ultimate sacrifice to live his life Serving the church that Jesus gave his life to redeem. Now, not only did Paul make a lot of sacrifices for the church, but if you study Paul's life, you'll find that he loved the church, and in that process of loving the church, there was a lot of suffering that he had to endure. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11... To, to them, and he's talking about those who were trying to mislead the, the Christians there in Corinth, and they were braggadocious about their life. And Paul was always pretty much a humble man, but in this, in this occasion, he, uh, he chose to take a stand and speak because he's not trying to build himself up, but he's saying, I am serving the Lord, and my, my life has proved that. He says in verse 23 They say they serve Christ. I know I sound like a madman and I have served him far more. I've worked harder. I've been uh, put in jail more often. Been whipped times without number. Times without number. So many times I can't even count them. And faced death again and again. Five different times the Jews gave me 39 lashes. Five times. He says, three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. And he didn't get that way from smoking. (laughs) Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift in the sea. Uh, That blows my mind. I can't imagine being out there in the sea at night with sharks. No sir. I've traveled many weary miles. I faced danger from flooded rivers and from robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews as well as from Gentiles. I' faced danger in the cities in the desert and on the stormy seas, and I' faced danger from men who claim to be Christians but are not. Imagine that. And I have lived with weariness and pain and sleepless nights. Often I've been hungry and thirsty and have gone without food. Often I've shivered in the, with the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all of this, he said, I have the daily burden of how the churches are getting along. Are they doing well? Are they living in unity? Are they fighting? Are they fussing? This week in one of my devotions, it was a it was a great study and it focused on David Livingstone, a man that was called to be a missionary in Africa. He began that journey back in 1841 and he landed by boat in Cape Town, South Africa, and he began his journey north and he walked up into Central Africa. He walked. He didn't get on a train, he didn't get on a, a bus or a jeep or a mo- mo- moped or motorcycle or anything like that. He walked. And the story told me that as he was going along, he was mauled by a lion. He was attacked. And it was so vicious that it broke his shoulder. And the only thing that saved him was his old Scottish tweed coat that was so thick that the lion's teeth couldn't penetrate it. And I thought, no, nah, it wasn't that It wasn't that jacket. It was God's hand that kept him from being killed. Who in their right mind would go on such a journey as that? I mean, to land in South Africa and walk to the middle of the country. The Lord reminded me, only somebody who is called to love the church and sinners like I am. That's the only person who's gonna do that. Paul's greatest concern was for churches that were weak and struggling and, and dying and literally being torn apart. It broke his heart when he saw believers fall prey to Satan. It, it must have tore out his heart when he saw his people that were on his mission team falling prey to the attacks of the devil. I, I'm sure that it was a gut-wrenching thing for Paul when he saw uh, Demas and, and even John Mark abandon him, and there were others. The chronic sin and mutiny of the Christians there in Corinth. I mean, they struggled in that place. That was a pagan place. The, the struggle that they went through had to have blown Paul away over and over again. It depressed him. But I want you to listen to how he sought to encourage the, the church there at Philippi. He says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Hold tightly to the word of life so that when Christ returns, I will be proud that I did not lose the race and and that my work was not useless. But even if my life is to be poured out like a drink offering to complete the sacrifice of your faithful service, that is, if I am to die for you, I will rejoice. Paul says, "If, if I have to die for you, I'm going to be happy about it. And it was a very real possibility. I mean, he wasn't just blowing smoke. His life was in jeopardy. He said, I want you to share my joy. I want to share my joy with all of you. And you should be happy about this and rejoice with me. When he wrote to Colossian Christians, he said, I am glad when I suffer. Man, I had never been where I was glad when I was suffering. Have you? Have you? He said, I'm glad when I'm suffering, suffering that obviously was for the church, obviously for Christ. He said, but I'm, I, I, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am completing what remains of Christ's suffering for his body, the church. Paul deeply loved the church. He was willing to die for it. His passion was no doubt focused on Christ, but because of his commitment to Christ in the church, his passion also was spread out and focused on the church. I love chapter 20. We're going to look at that today, begin that study looking in Acts chapter 20. And it's really interesting what I see, especially in these first 17 verses. You're You're going to notice this with me as we go through this. There is really no descriptive language in these first 17 verses about love at all. You won't see love. You won't see it talked about. Uh, This passage really contains no doctrine on the subject of love, and there's no practical instructions on how to love. And yet, it's clear that when you look at Paul's life and what he did, he had a very deep love for the church, and that love is seen in his action. We're going to talk about two of the things that he did this morning that made his love visible for us to see even today. First and foremost, Paul first demonstrated his love through his words of encouragement. Look at verse one. It says, When it was all over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. Then he said goodbye and he left for Macedonia. And along the way he encouraged the believers in all the towns he passed through. Last week we, if you remember, we, we saw a mob form that came against the church there in Ephesus. When that mob kind of dispersed and left, they cleared away. Paul got busy calling all the Christians together in one place where he could speak to them. Now, that number had grown quite considerably from that original dozen. Remember, there were 12 men that that he led to faith in Christ, and that was a seed group for the church there in Ephesus. Now, this church, we're talking two years later, two years plus later, this church has hundreds, maybe thousands of believers that were part of the church. And and if you look in verse 17 of chapter 20, you'll find that, that Paul, as he's getting them all together, he calls for the elders of the church, plural, not one elder, not one pastor, but the, the many pastors that were pastoring that church in Ephesus. Now we don't know exactly. Some would say, well, that was one big, large church and it just had a lot of pastors. You know, the bigger you get, the more pastors you need. I don't think it was quite that way. I think they had a lot of house churches. There, were, there was no way for them to be able to all meet together. There was no place big enough. So they, they would get together in house churches, and because they were scattered all over Ephesus, Ephesus was a, was a large metropolitan area. It was vast. And so there were a lot of house churches that had a lot of pastors. But the beautiful thing is, even though there was that much diversity among these house churches, They all considered themselves to be one church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would do that today. Oh, that we could do that today. Paul had seen such great numerical growth, amazing numerical growth under his leadership. All of his effort and all of his investment had paid off, and through him and the hard work that he had put forth, The kingdom of God had grown and in that process so did the church. It was always Paul's goal to grow the kingdom of God one precious soul at a time. That is what a shepherd, that is certainly one of the main reasons that a a shepherd has been called to a pastor and that's to grow the kingdom of God. So, so just before Paul left Ephesus, he gathered as many as those, those believers he could get together and he encouraged them with the word of God one more time. I I cannot help but think that as Paul met with that group of people, Paul had to have known that that was the last time they would ever see his face and the last time he would ever see theirs. He had to have known that. I've been there before. When you've preach that last message among a group of people that you poured your heart out into. It's hard to leave. Paul must have been torn in his heart. But he wanted to get them get together one more time to take advantage of that last opportunity to make the most to encourage them to follow the Lord. He then left and he headed towards Macedonia and along the way as he was making that journey, as he would encounter believers, he actually sought out believers Uh, to encourage them with the Word of God. And oh, how he wanted to have them spiritually ready to meet Jesus. You know, one of the greatest things that I look forward to is the day that Jesus comes back, amen? And I, I want you guys to be ready. I want to be ready, but I want you guys to be ready too. I don't want anybody to be disappointed about their life when the Lord comes. And that's why we need to stay at it, amen? We need to grow up in the Lord and be ready and be, be what he wants us to be. I, I've said this before, and, and you've heard it. Strong biblical preaching and teaching will enhance your spiritual growth. One of my goals every time you come into this place on a Sunday morning is to preach to you the gospel. I'm going to preach. I want people to get saved, so I'm going to preach the gospel. And I'm going to preach, and I'm going to, teach and I, I hope and pray that that as as I do we're pointing men and women, boys and girls to Jesus Christ I want you to grow up spiritually to be everything that God wants you to be, I promise you I will preach the truth of God's word but you know what there's more that you can do you can come and you can worship and, and I can preach and teach to you But you can also get involved on Sunday morning in a small group Sunday morning Bible study class. Are you hearing me? We have Bible study here at 11 o'clock for everybody, all ages, for you to plug into so that you can learn and study the Word of God. Small groups Bible study is where you're going to grow the most. Uh, I believe this. If you can only give God an hour on Sunday, skip worship and go to Sunday school. Did you hear me? Please hear me. It's that important. The times that I've grown the most in my life have been when I went into a Sunday school class and let somebody teach me the Word of God. And and, and through that, I, I got involved in my own personal study at home. And, and for those of you that will... Be bold enough and brave enough to teach a class. You'll grow more teaching a class than you ever will sitting under my preaching on Sunday morning. But Sunday school, for me, that's where I began to grow. It's when I got involved in a Bible study. You'll learn more there than you will anywhere else. We're called by God to be what? Disciples. And what is a disciple? It is a lifelong learner of Jesus Christ. You're not just called to be saved, to be made ready for heaven, to get your ticket punched. You are called to grow up in Christ, and you'll do that better in a Sunday school class than you will Sunday morning worship. Amen? Amen. so, yeah. We, we have been traditionally a church that probably 80% of our worship crowd stayed for Bible study. I think we're getting a little bit lazy there. Okay? This is your preacher preaching here. I'm, I'm stepping on some toes now. We make Bible study available. So I hope you'll be there. It'll it'll help you. Paul encouraged people with the word, and thus he demonstrated his love for the church. You can also see that, that Paul loved the church through his sacrificial giving. Uh, in, in the center of verse one it says, Then he said goodbye and he left for Macedonia. What was he doing? What was going on? Well, Paul's travel itinerary took him through the district, district of Macedonia and all the way through the region of Acacia. He goes from the south of that area all the way up through the north. He is obviously on a journey, uh, but it's taking him away from his destination. He's going in the opposite direction of Jerusalem. See, his plan is to go to Jerusalem. So why in the world is Paul going in the opposite direction? Well, his plan, uh, the plan he had for his journey had a threefold purpose, as I've already taught you this morning. The first reason that he traveled that way was to encourage all the believers with the Word of God. He's retracing his steps. He's going back to the churches he's planted, to the people he's led to Christ, to the churches that have been started, and he's, he's visiting them again and teaching them, and he's trying to make sure that they are spiritually grounded in the Word of God. He's growing up disciples. He's being a great commissioned Christian, and that's what we're to be. His next reason for going was to take up a collection for the poor believers there in Jerusalem. And and Paul makes mention of this special offering in at least three of his letters. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said now about the money being collected for the Christians in Jerusalem. He said, you should follow the same procedure that I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the Lord's Day. What day is the Lord's Day? Sunday. You're here. This is the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day, he says, each of you should put aside some amount of money in relationship to what you have earned and save it for this offering. Notice that is a weekly thing. He says, don't wait until uh, I get there and then try to... Uh, collect it all at once. Why? Because you won't get, you won't give what you could give if you give every week. Paul knew what he was talking about. He said, when I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers that you choose to deliver your gifts in or to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me also to go along, then we can travel together. When he wrote the second letter to the Corinthians, he devoted two entire chapters of his letter uh, on the importance of this collection, chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 9. And then when he wrote to the Romans, he writes these words. He says, "'Before I come, I must go down to Jerusalem "'and take a gift to the Christians there. "'For you see, the believers in Greece "'have eagerly taken up an offering "'for the Christians in Jerusalem "'who are going through such hard times.'" They were very glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Since the Gentiles received the wonderful spiritual blessing of the good news from the Jewish Christians, they feel the least that they can do in return is to help them financially. As soon as I have delivered this money and complete completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. What's going on? Well, if you could somehow get a picture of what was going on in Jerusalem, what you would do, you, you would see that the, the Christians in Jerusalem were starving to death. They were. They were starving to death. Part of that was because of a severe famine that had been in that land. There was little to no food to be found. We're very blessed to be able to go to the grocery store. Amen? You know there's only three days of food in a grocery store? It can go fast. It went fast in Jerusalem. There was no food. There was also, and probably the primary reason why they were starving was because of the severe persecution that was going on. You see, there were hardline Jews that were persecuting the Jewish brothers and sisters who had become Christians. I've said this to you before. Most of that first church were Jewish people, people who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And, And there was a price to pay for doing that. In that day, if a Jew became a Christian and accepted Christ, uh, your family would abandon you. They would have nothing else to do with you. They would literally treat you as if you were dead. If you were working for a Jewish man, he would fire you so you'd have no job, no way to make an income. The Jewish baker would no longer sell you bread and the Jewish butcher would no longer sell you meat. Literally, you would be blackballed among the Jewish community, and you lived among the Jews. You were a minority being a Christian, now living among Jews, and so you had a very difficult time making, uh, making things work. Uh, you were considered to be an outcast. You were considered worse than a Samaritan, and they hated Samaritans. At first, the wealthier Jews that became Christians, because they had land and because they had money, they tried their best to take care of the church. We see that in in Acts 4.32. It says, and all the believers were of one heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. And the apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great favor was upon them all. And there was no poverty among them because people who owned land or houses sold them. And they brought the money to the apostles to give to others in need. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? You reckon anything like that could happen today? I don't know. We're kind of tight. We've got a grip on things, don't we? They live their life with open hands. It worked for a little while but eventually the wealth that some of those people had was gone and when that happened they were all hungry. They were all starving. Thus was the case of the church of Jerusalem. They were struggling to survive and that's why the offering was so important to Paul. He He was a true shepherd that loved the church and wanted to make sure it was taken care of. Wanted to make sure they had food to eat. Wanted to make sure they were warm and not cold and miserable and dying. I'm sure Paul personally sacrificed. He was a tent maker. Paul self-employed himself. But I'm sure he did without to make sure that others had. But he also encouraged the church that was outside of Jerusalem. Come together. Come together. Let's make an offering. Let's give so that these people can live. Just as important as Christians having food was their need to be unified. Folks, unity was always on Paul's mind. He knew very well how Satan worked. Satan loved to divide and conquer. And and Paul knew that the cultural tension between Jews and Gentiles posed an ever-present danger to church unity. So by helping them meet the needs of these poor Christians in Jerusalem, he, he knew that the Gentiles would be able to affirm their love for them and that in turn would, would cultivate a bond of unity that was so important to Paul and so important to God. You know, sometimes distance plus diversity and the degree of a, a fellow believer's storm leaves us at a loss for what to do to help people. I don't mind telling you, and I, I say this because some of you are here this morning, the Bosch family is, is a prime example of what I'm talking about. Emmy's a very sick young lady, has been now for a while. Randy and, and Missy and, and, and all the Bosch family struggling. It's It's hard. It's tough going through what they're going through. They they literally the 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 doctors at King's daughters have exhausted their ability to know what to do, and that's why she's in Boston. And Ronnie said it well the other day. Yesterday at prayer breakfast, he said, "There's probably a hundred neurologists trying to figure out what to do and how to help them." It was a whole lot easier when they were here. We we could drive across town and minister to them, but now. They're in Boston and that's no short journey. That's that's twelve hours to get to them, to be able to minister to them. Boston's just a little bit further than Norfolk. But you know what? It's not too far for our God. And and it it's not too far for for the for the church to work. We were having supper the other night with Mark and Ann Custolo and and Anne and Joyce were talking and Mark and I got to talking we were thinking about Randy and Missy and Emmy and we are trying to figure out how in the world can we help them And I don't know where Mark said you know there just might be a church plant in the Boston area that might be able to help them and so Mark made some phone calls it took him almost a week to finally get through to a guy a guy was on vacation he he got up with a missionary and the missionary said yeah he said I think I can 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 talk to somebody and So it it, kind of took a little while, you know. We're always questioning God and His timing. One day I got a call from a guy by the name of Jared Kirk. Jared Kirk is a church planner up there. They have a church five miles from Boston Hospital. I talked to him for a little while, and he said, "Look, I'd like to go by," and and uh, my wife and I. Her his wife's name is Heather. He said, "I'd like to go by," and. And we'll try to minister to them and, and pray with them and see whatever we can do to help them. So when I got through, I text Missy and I said, there's a church planner just five miles away from you that will be making contact with you. And, and immediately I got a text back and she, she said, you're not going to believe this. I literally was praying this morning for somebody to come. Somebody to come. I say that to give God Glory. God is bigger than we think he is. And God can provide and meet our needs in ways we don't even understand. Kirk called me last Wednesday and he said, well, we've been by, but we're not through. We're continuing to pray. We're going to do more. In fact, some of the ladies at the church are putting together a care box and we're going to take it by. The love of Christ is all around them. And, you know, I, I don't understand everything. I'm not going to stand here and tell you I do. I don't understand everything that's going on there, but I I know this. God is always at work taking care of his people. And by far, the way that God chooses to do that is through the church, through people like you and me. He wants to work through us. We are his hands and his feet. And uh, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you stop and think about it, it circles the planet we live on. There are Christians right now all around the world. They're everywhere. And one of the primary reasons that God has done that is he wants to use us to minister to one another in ways that we would never even imagine ourselves. Now, can I just back up again and suggest something? You know, we 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 think about how do we minister. Can I tell you that one of the best ways for you to ever minister to people is through your Sunday school class? Can, can, do, you, do you get the message I'm talking about Sunday school classes today? I hope you do. <laughs> One of the very best ways that you can ever minister to other people is through the ministry of your Sunday school class. It's a great, great platform for you to be able to minister to people, to touch people with the love of Christ. Caregiving is a very important way to show people the love of Christ. There is an inseparable link between giving and love found in the Bible, and I believe that all flows out of passion. And, and I want to show you something in 1 John chapter 3. Look with me at verse 16 John writes, we know what real love is. And the world needs to know that. We know what real love is because Christ gave up his life for us. And so we ought to give up our lives for our Christian brothers and sisters. But if anyone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, Let us stop just saying we love each other and let us really show it by our actions. It's very clear when you look into the 20th chapter of Acts that Paul deeply loved the church with his heart. It was because of his calling and and out of a necessity that he had to leave the church he loved, but it was all because he was called to take the gospel to other people who had never heard it. Paul was not one of those that was going to be selfish. He was open to God. And when God said move, he moved. He was all in. He was 100% sold out to God, doing whatever God called him to do. And he literally poured out his life with all humility to demonstrate the gospel of grace. And in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, he says these words. He said, I have done the Lord's work humbly, yes, and with tears. And I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. Why Why would a man live his life that way? Why would someone have that depth of dedication? Why was Paul so passionate about the church? Why was he willing to die for it? Do you suppose it was because Paul never got over his salvation experience on the road to Damascus? Paul left Jerusalem and headed for Damascus to kill Christians. And in the midst of that journey, he encountered Christ and, and he saw and and, endured and, and and experienced the love of Christ and it forever changed his life. It turned Paul inside out. He became a disciple maker instead of a Christian killer. He never got over that because he experienced the, the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the world would God save a Christian killer In the first place, but then turn around and make him one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. Why would God do that? It's the love of Christ. It is his passion for us. Dr. Dwayne Mercer wrote, The same humility that brought him to the foot of the cross on the Damascus Road compelled him to stay near the cross, to embrace the gospel, and to finish well. Paul wrote Timothy, and he said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race I have remained faithful. Are you fighting a good fight? Are you? Are you finishing the race well? Are things better today between you and God than they were yesterday or the day before? Should be. My prayer is that it is. Paul says, As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that cross, because of that cross, my interest in this world died long ago and the world's interest in me is also long dead. What about you? What's, what's the most important thing in your life? The Word of God are the ways of the world. The things that you possess are the promises that God has made? What about you? It's a message about love and passion. My prayer this morning is that you passionately love Christ. I remember ministering to a young man down in North Carolina for a number of years, and 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 Mal was a was a crack addict. He was one of the most brilliant young men I've ever known. But he got hung up on crack cocaine and it was ruining his life. It caused a divorce. His whole world was falling in and I watched him go through that vicious cycle over and over and over again. And he would always come back and he wanted to know, why is this happening to me? And I remember saying to him one day, I said, "Mel, you will never kick Crack until you love Jesus more than you love your drugs. And I don't care what you're hung up on, I don't care what your problem is, that's true for all of us. Our life's not going to get better until we fall in love with Jesus. We got to love him and we got to be passionate about him. We need to become a true disciple of Christ, not just saved. It's not about just getting a ticket punch to get in. It's about being everything that God wants us to be. Amen? Amen. Where's your passion? What do you love? Where are you spending your time and your energy and your effort and your money? That's what you love. That's what you love. We all need to evaluate what we love sometimes. Because sometimes our love gets misdirected. And it's so easy to get caught up in things of the world. and We put God on the shelf and we just forget about Him. The most important thing you can ever have in this life is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, nothing you have nothing you have will ever satisfy you. Job said, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave. Guess what? You will too. But if you leave here with Jesus, you're going to be a happy, happy, happy guy. Happy, happy, happy. That's what I want to be. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is that what we've said and done will inspire people to come closer to you. Lord, we need to turn loose of the world and take hold of you. We need to sacrifice our life for you because you sacrifice your life for us. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be honest with ourselves. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll do the work that only you can do, and that's to bring conviction that makes us miserable with where we are because, Lord, sometimes we need to be that way in order for us to be desperate for God. Lord, I trust you to do the work that you desire to do, and I know, Lord, you're working in all of us because none of us have arrived. There's something in every one of us today that needs to change that will help us to be more like you. Please do your work. Be glorified, and and Lord, receive praise from our obedience today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's be obedient to God. and What God puts in your heart to do, do for him. Do for him and be blessed.